Book twenty two, chapters one through seven of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo. Book twenty two, chapter one. As we promised in the immediately preceding book, this, the last of the whole work, shall contain a discussion of the eternal blessedness of the city of God. This blessedness is named eternal, not because it shall endure for many ages, though at last it shall come to an end, but because, according to the words of the gospel, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Neither shall it enjoy the mere appearance of perpetuity which is maintained by the rise of fresh generations to occupy the place of those that have died out, as in an evergreen the same freshness seems to continue permanently, and the same appearance of dense foliage is preserved by the growth of fresh leaves in the room of those that have withered and fallen. But in that city all the citizens shall be immortal, men now for the first time enjoy what the holy angels have never lost. And this shall be accomplished by God, the most almighty founder of the city. For he has promised it, and cannot lie, and has already performed many of his promises, and has done many unpromised kindnesses to those whom he now asks to believe that he will do this also. For it is he who in the beginning created the world full of all visible and intelligible beings, among which he created nothing better than those spirits whom he endowed with intelligence, and made capable of contemplating and enjoying him, and united in our society, which we call the holy and heavenly city, and in which the material of their substance and blessedness is God himself, as it were their common food and nourishment. It is he who gave to this intellectual nature free will of such a kind, that if he wished to forsake God, that is, his blessedness, misery should forthwith result. It is he who, when he foreknew that certain angels would, in their pride, desire to suffice for their own blessedness, and would forsake their great good, did not deprive them of this power, deeming it to be more befitting his power and goodness to bring good out of evil than to prevent the evil from coming into existence. And indeed evil had never been, had not the mutable nature, mutable though good, and created by the most high God, and immutable good, who created all things good, brought evil upon itself by sin. And this its sin is itself proof that its nature was originally good. For had it not been very good, though not equal to its creator, the desertion of God as its light could not have been an evil to it. For as blindness is a vice of the eye, and this very fact indicates that the eye was created to see the light, and as, consequently, vice itself proves that the eye is more excellent than the other members, because it is capable of light, 
for on no other supposition would it be a vice of the eye to want light, so the nature which once enjoyed God teaches, even by its very vice, that it was created the best of all, since it is now miserable because it does not enjoy God. It is he who with very just punishment doomed the angels who voluntarily fell to everlasting misery, and rewarded those who continued in their attachment to the supreme good with the assurance of endless stability as the meed of their fidelity. It is he who made also man himself upright with the same freedom of will, an earthly animal indeed, but fit for heaven if he remained faithful to his creator, but destined to the misery appropriate to such a nature if he forsook him. It is he who, when he foreknew that man would in his turn sin by abandoning God and breaking his law, did not deprive him of the power of free will, because he at the same time foresaw what good he himself would bring out of the evil, and how from this mortal race, deservedly and justly condemned, he would by his grace collect, as now he does, a people so numerous, that he thus fills up and repairs the blank made by the fallen angels, and that thus that beloved and heavenly city is not defrauded of the full number of its citizens, but perhaps may even rejoice in a still more overflowing population. CHAPTER Two. It is true that wicked men do many things contrary to God's will, but so great is his wisdom and power, that all things which seem adverse to his purpose do still tend towards those just and good ends and issues which he himself has foreknown. And consequently, when God is said to change his will, as when, for example, he becomes angry with those to whom he was gentle, it is rather they than he who are changed, and they find him changed in so far as their experience of suffering at his hand is new, as the sun is changed to injured eyes, and becomes, as it were, fierce from being mild, and hurtful from being delightful, though in itself it remains the same as it was. That also is called the will of God, which he does in the hearts of those who obey his commandments. And of this the apostle says, For it is God that worketh in you both to will. As God's righteousness is used not only of the righteousness wherewith he himself is righteous, but also of that which he produces in the man whom he justifies, so also that is called his law, which, though given by God, is rather the law of men. For certainly they were men to whom Jesus said, It is written in your law, though in another place we read, The law of his God is in his heart. According to this will which God works in men, he is said also to will what he himself does not will, but causes his people to will, as he is said to know what he has caused those to know who were ignorant of it. For when the apostle says, But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, we cannot suppose that God there for the first time knew those who were foreknown by him before the foundation of the world. But he is said to have known them then, because then he caused them to know. But I remember that I discussed these modes of expression in the preceding books. 
According to this will, then, by which we say that God wills what he causes to be willed by others, from whom the future is hidden, he wills many things which he does not perform. Thus his saints, inspired by his holy will, desire many things which never happen. They pray, for example, for certain individuals. They pray in a pious and holy manner. But what they request he does not perform, though he himself, by his own holy spirit, has wrought in them this will to pray. And consequently, when the saints, in conformity with God's mind, will and pray that all men be saved, we can use this mode of expression, God wills and does not perform, meaning that he who causes them to will these things himself wills them. But if we speak of that will of his which is eternal as his foreknowledge, certainly he has already done all things in heaven and on earth that he has willed, and not only past and present things, but even things still future. But before the arrival of that time in which he has willed the occurrence of what he foreknew and arranged before all time, we say, it will happen when God wills. But if we are ignorant not only of the time in which it is to be, but even whether it shall be at all, we say, it will happen if God wills, not because God will then have a new will which he had not before, but because that event, which from eternity has been prepared in his unchangeable will, shall then come to pass. CHAPTER three. Wherefore, not to mention many other instances besides, as we now see in Christ the fulfilment of that which God promised to Abraham when he said, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed, so this also shall be fulfilled which he promised to the same race, when he said by the prophet, They that are in their sepulchres shall rise again, and also, there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be mentioned nor come into mind, but they shall find joy and rejoicing in it. For I will make Jerusalem a rejoicing, and my people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her. And by another prophet he uttered the same prediction. At that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust, or, as some interpret it, in the mound, of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And in another place by the same prophet, the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom, and shall possess the kingdom for ever, even for ever and ever. And a little after he says, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Other prophecies referring to the same subject I have advanced in the twentieth book, and others still which I have not advanced are found written in the same scriptures, and these predictions shall be fulfilled, as those also have been, which unbelieving men supposed would be frustrate. For it is the same God who promised both, and predicted that both would come to pass, the God whom the pagan deities tremble before, as even Porphyry, the noblest of pagan philosophers, testifies. CHAPTER four. 
But men who use their learning and intellectual ability to resist the force of that great authority, which, in fulfilment of what was so long before predicted, has converted all races of men to faith and hope in its promises, seem to themselves to argue acutely against the resurrection of the body, while they cite what Cicero mentions in the third book, De Republica. For when he was asserting the apotheosis of Hercules and Romulus, he says, Whose bodies were not taken up into heaven, for nature would not permit a body of earth to exist anywhere except upon earth. This forsooth is the profound reasoning of the wise men, whose thoughts God knows that they are vain. For if we were only souls, that is, spirits, without any body, and if we dwelt in heaven, and had no knowledge of earthly animals, and were told that we should be bound to earthly bodies by some wonderful bond of union, and should animate them, should we not much more vigorously refuse to believe this, and maintain that nature would not permit an incorporeal substance to be held by a corporeal bond? And yet the earth is full of living spirits, to which terrestrial bodies are bound, and with which they are, in a wonderful way, implicated. If, then, the same God who has created such beings wills this also, what is to hinder the earthly body from being raised to a heavenly body, since a spirit which is more excellent than all bodies, and consequently than even a heavenly body, has been tied to an earthly body? If so small an earthly particle has been able to hold in union with itself something better than a heavenly body, so as to receive sensation and life, will heaven disdain to receive, or at least to retain, this sentient and living particle which derives its life and sensation from a substance more excellent than any heavenly body? If this does not happen now, it is because the time is not yet come which has been determined by him who has already done a much more marvellous thing than that which these men refuse to believe. For why do we not more intensely wonder that incorporeal souls, which are of higher rank than heavenly bodies, are bound to earthly bodies, rather than that bodies, although earthly, are exalted to an abode which, though heavenly, is yet corporeal, except because we have been accustomed to see this, and indeed are this, while we are not as yet that other marvel, nor have as yet ever seen it? Certainly, if we consult sober reason, the more wonderful of the two divine works is found to be to attach somehow corporeal things to incorporeal, and not to connect earthly things with heavenly, which, though diverse, are yet both of them corporeal. CHAPTER five. But granting that this was once incredible, behold, now the world has come to the belief that the earthly body of Christ was received up into heaven. Already both the learned and unlearned have believed in the resurrection of the flesh and its ascension to the heavenly places, while only a very few, either of the educated or uneducated, are still staggered by it. If this is a credible thing which is believed, then let those who do not believe see how stolid they are, and if it is incredible, then this also is an incredible thing, that what is incredible should have received such credit. 
Here, then, we have two incredibles, to wit, the resurrection of our body to eternity, and that the world should believe so incredible a thing, and both these incredibles the same God predicted should come to pass before either had as yet occurred. We see that already one of the two has come to pass, for the world has believed what was incredible. Why should we despair that the remaining one shall also come to pass, and that this which the world believed, though it was incredible, shall itself occur? For already that which was equally incredible has come to pass in the world's believing an incredible thing. Both were incredible. The one we see accomplished, the other we believe shall be. For both were predicted in those same scriptures by means of which the world believed. And the very manner in which the world's faith was won is found to be even more incredible if we consider it. Men uninstructed in any branch of a liberal education, without any of the refinement of heathen learning, unskilled in grammar, not armed with dialectic, not adorned with rhetoric, but plain fishermen, and very few in number, these were the men whom Christ sent with the nets of faith to the sea of this world, and thus took, out of every race, so many fishes, and even the philosophers themselves, wonderful as they are rare. Let us add, if you please, or because you ought to be pleased, this third incredible thing to the two former. And now we have three incredibles, all of which have yet come to pass. It is incredible that Jesus Christ should have risen in the flesh, and ascended with flesh into heaven. It is incredible that the world should have believed so incredible a thing. It is incredible that a very few men of mean birth and the lowest rank, and no education, should have been able so effectually to persuade the world, and even its learned men, of so incredible a thing. Of these three incredibles, the parties with whom we are debating refuse to believe the first. They cannot refuse to see the second, which they are unable to account for, if they do not believe the third. It is indubitable that the resurrection of Christ, and his ascension into heaven with the flesh in which he rose, is already preached and believed in the whole world. If it is not credible, how is it that it has already received credence in the whole world? If a number of noble, exalted, and learned men had said that they had witnessed it, and had been at pains to publish what they had witnessed, it were not wonderful that the world should have believed it, but it were very stubborn to refuse credence. But if, as is true, the world has believed a few obscure, inconsiderable, uneducated persons, who state and write that they witnessed it, is it not unreasonable that a handful of wrong-headed men should oppose themselves to the creed of the whole world, and refuse their belief? And if the world has put faith in a small number of men, of mean birth and the lowest rank, and no education, it is because the divinity of the thing itself appeared all the more manifestly in such contemptible witnesses. The eloquence, indeed, which lent persuasion to their message, consisted of wonderful works, not words. For they who had not seen Christ risen in the flesh, nor ascending into heaven with his risen body, believed those who related how they had seen these things, and who testified not only with words, but wonderful signs. 
for men whom they knew to be acquainted with only one or at most two languages they marvelled to hear speaking in the tongues of all nations they saw a man lame from his mother's womb after forty years stand up sound at their word in the name of christ that handkerchiefs taken from their bodies had virtue to heal the sick that countless persons sick of various diseases were laid in a row in the road where they were to pass that their shadow might fall on them as they walked and that they forthwith received health that many other stupendous miracles were wrought by them in the name of Christ, and finally that they even raised the dead. If it be admitted that these things occurred as they are related, then we have a multitude of incredible things to add to those three incredibles. That the one incredibility of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ may be believed, we accumulate the testimonies of countless incredible miracles, but even so we do not bend the frightful obstinacy of these skeptics. But if they do not believe that these miracles were wrought by Christ's apostles to gain credence to their preaching of his resurrection and ascension, this one grand miracle suffices for us that the whole world has believed without any miracles. CHAPTER six. Let us here recite the passage in which Tully expresses his astonishment that the apotheosis of Romulus should have been credited. I shall insert his words as they stand. It is most worthy of remark in Romulus that other men who are said to have become gods lived in less educated ages, when there was a greater propensity to the fabulous, and when the uninstructed were easily persuaded to believe anything. But the age of Romulus was barely six hundred years ago, and already literature and science had dispelled the errors that attach to an uncultured age and a little after he says of the same Romulus words to this effect. From this we may perceive that Homer had flourished long before Romulus, and that there was now so much learning in individuals, and so generally diffused an enlightenment, that scarcely any room was left for fable. For antiquity admitted fables, and sometimes even very clumsy ones, but this age of Romulus was sufficiently enlightened to reject whatever had not the air of truth. Thus one of the most learned men, and certainly the most eloquent, Marcus Tullius Cicero, says that it is surprising that the divinity of Romulus was believed in, because the times were already so enlightened that they would not accept a fabulous fiction. But who believed that Romulus was a god, except Rome, which was itself small and in its infancy? Then afterwards it was necessary that succeeding generations should preserve the tradition of their ancestors, that, drinking in this superstition with their mother's milk, the state might grow and come to such power that it might dictate this belief, as from a point of vantage to all the nations over whom its sway extended. And these nations, though they might not believe that Romulus was a god, at least said so, that they might not give offence to their sovereign state by refusing to give its founder that title which was given him by Rome, which had adopted this belief not by a love of error, but an error of love. 
But though Christ is the founder of the heavenly and eternal city, yet it did not believe him to be God because it was founded by him, but rather it is founded by him in virtue of its belief. Rome, after it had been built and dedicated, worshipped its founder in a temple as a god, but this Jerusalem laid Christ, its god, as its foundation, that the building and dedication might proceed. The former city loved its founder, and therefore believed him to be a god. The latter believed Christ to be god, and therefore loved him." There was an antecedent cause for the love of the former city, and for its believing that even a false dignity attached to the object of its love. So there was an antecedent cause for the belief of the latter, and for its loving the true dignity which a proper faith, not a rash surmise, ascribed to its object. For not to mention the multitude of very striking miracles which proved that Christ is God, there were also divine prophecies heralding him, prophecies most worthy of belief, which, being already accomplished, we have not, like the fathers, to wait for their verification. Of Romulus, on the other hand, and of his building Rome and reigning in it, we read or hear the narrative of what did take place, not prediction which beforehand said that such things should be. And so far as his reception among the gods is concerned, history only records that this was believed, and does not state it as a fact, for no miraculous signs testify to the truth of this. For as to that wolf which is said to have nursed the twin brothers, and which is considered a great marvel, how does this prove him to have been divine? For even supposing that this nurse was a real wolf, and not a mere courtesan, she yet nursed both brothers, and Remus is not reckoned a god. Besides, what was there to hinder any one from asserting that Romulus, or Hercules, or any such man, was a god? Or who would rather choose to die than profess belief in his divinity? And did a single nation worship Romulus among its gods, unless it were forced through fear of the Roman name? But who can number the multitudes who have chosen death in the most cruel shapes, rather than deny the divinity of Christ? and thus the dread of some slight indignation, which it was supposed, perhaps groundlessly, might exist in the minds of the Romans, constrained some states who were subject to Rome to worship Romulus as a god, whereas the dread, not of a slight mental shock, but of severe and various punishments, and of death itself the most formidable of all, could not prevent an immense multitude of martyrs throughout the world from not merely worshipping, but also confessing Christ as God. The city of Christ, which, although as yet a stranger upon earth, had countless hosts of citizens, did not make war upon its godless persecutors for the sake of temporal security, but preferred to win eternal salvation by abstaining from war. They were bound, imprisoned, beaten, tortured, burned, torn in pieces, massacred, and yet they multiplied. It was not given to them to fight for their eternal salvation, except by despising their temporal salvation, for their Saviour's sake. I am aware that Cicero, in the third book of his De Republica, if I mistake not, argues that a first-rate power will not engage in war, except either for honour or for safety. 
What he has to say about the question of safety, and what he means by safety, he explains in another place, saying, Private persons frequently evade, by a speedy death, destitution, exile, bonds, the scourge, and the other pains which even the most insensible feel. But to states, death, which seems to emancipate individuals from all punishments, is itself a punishment. For a state should be so constituted as to be eternal. And thus death is not natural to a republic as to a man, to whom death is not only necessary, but often even desirable. But when a state is destroyed, obliterated, annihilated, it is as if, to compare great things with small, this whole world perished and collapsed. Cicero said this because he, with the Platonists, believed that the world would not perish. It is therefore agreed that according to Cicero, a state should engage in war for the safety which preserves the state permanently in existence, though its citizens change, as the foliage of an olive or laurel or any tree of this kind is perennial, the old leaves being replaced by fresh ones. For death, as he says, is no punishment to individuals, but rather delivers them from all other punishments, but it is a punishment to the state. And therefore it is reasonably asked whether the Saguntines did right when they chose that their whole state should perish, rather than that they should break faith with the Roman Republic, for this deed of theirs is applauded by the citizens of the earthly republic. But I do not see how they could follow the advice of Cicero, who tell us that no war is to be undertaken save for safety or for honour. Neither does he say which of these two is to be preferred, if a case should occur in which the one could not be preserved without the loss of the other. For manifestly, if the Saguntines chose safety, they must break faith. If they kept faith, they must reject safety, as also it fell out." But the safety of the city of God is such that it can be retained, or rather acquired, by faith and with faith. But if faith be abandoned, no one can attain it. It is this thought of a most steadfast and patient spirit that has made so many noble martyrs, while Romulus has not had, and could not have, so much as one to die for his divinity. CHAPTER Seven. But it is thoroughly ridiculous to make mention of the false divinity of Romulus as any way comparable to that of Christ. Nevertheless, if Romulus lived about six hundred years before Cicero, in an age which already was so enlightened that it rejected all impossibilities, how much more, in an age which certainly was more enlightened, being six hundred years later, the age of Cicero himself, and of the emperors Augustus and Tiberius, would the human mind have refused to listen to or believe in the resurrection of Christ's body and its ascension into heaven, and have scouted it as an impossibility, had not the divinity of the truth itself, or the truth of the divinity, and corroborating miraculous signs, proved that it could happen and had happened? 
through virtue of these testimonies, and notwithstanding the opposition and terror of so many cruel persecutions, the resurrection and immortality of the flesh, first in Christ, and subsequently in all in the new world, was believed, was intrepidly proclaimed, and was sown over the whole world, to be fertilized richly with the blood of the martyrs. For the predictions of the prophets that had preceded the events were read, they were corroborated by powerful signs, and the truth was seen to be not contradictory to reason, but only different from customary ideas, so that at length the world embraced the faith it had furiously persecuted. End of Book 22, Chapters 1-7 through 7. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org